Welcome to Ormwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to our podcast where we share our Sunday sermons for those in Ormwood Park, Atlanta, and beyond. Our mission is to welcome everyone to explore the living God in all of our neighborhoods, and we value welcoming others, opening our minds, being of service, and participating in whatever ways God calls us. We hope you learn, grow, and find a place to belong with us. So friends, as I prepare to read um, our scripture for today, I just wanted to acknowledge that some of it is quite imaginative and beautiful to imagine. So if you'd like to close your eyes, if you're able, and imagine the scripture as I read it, I invite you to do just that. So I think it'll be a pretty fun film in your mind. We are reading from the end of the book of Job from chapter 38. Listen now for a word from God. And now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm, a whirlwind. God said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Stand on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? How has its foundation poured? And and who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen, so it couldn't run loose. And I said, stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And have you ever ordered morning, get up, or told dawn, get to work, so you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches? As the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the shapes and colors, the cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked and they're caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the bottom, to the true bottom of things? Explored the labyrinthian caves of deep ocean? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries? And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up, if you have even the beginning of an answer. Do you know where light comes from? Where darkness lives? So you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost. Why, of course you know that. You've known them all your life, grown up in the same neighborhood with them. Have you ever traveled to where snow is made? Seen the vault where hail is stockpiled, the arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or to the place from which the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching that useless wasteland so they're carpeted with wildflowers? and grass. And who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Can you catch the eye of the beautiful Pleiades sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or get the great bear and her cubs to come out and play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things on earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds 
and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? So the book of Job is probably one of the oldest pieces of writing in the Old Testament, even older than Genesis. It's a somewhat of a testament to our lifelong struggle of watching bad things happen to good people and just not understanding that. Much of the book is also a collection of just really terrible advice about hardship from Job's friends. But in the end, Job says, no, this isn't right. I want to hear from God. So the culminating point in the book of Job are these final three chapters where Job is somewhat put in his place. God answers Job. God catches Job up in a whirlwind and shows him all the amazing parts of creation as a defense of sorts. Job is brought face to face with God's creative abilities that are beyond his comprehension. And so then awe and wonder and gratitude are Job's final, very mortal position. God uses creativity as God's defense. So this passage is is an example of that, right? It's the gorgeous listing of the amazing mechanisms and creatures and phenomenons of nature. And we've just read one portion of one chapter of three, but we've already covered a lot of ground. The measurement of the earth, the morning stars, the gushing and wild tantrums of the ocean, the dawn and the true darkness at the bottom of all things, death, the stockpiling of hail, launching of lightning, carved canyons and wildflowers. There's constellation and then this commissioning of a shower of rain. When Job doubts and laments, he is not met with a dismissive God, but with a God who wants him to see the creativity all around him, wants Job to displace himself as the center of all things. God is the expert, the pro, the genius, the master artist. And really the lesson for Job is to look up and to look around and to be in awe. So today I actually want to share some of my favorite modern creation stories. Creation wasn't just this event at some point in the past. I mean, every day the creativity of God in this world is around us, inviting us into these whirlwind moments of ongoing creativity and collaboration and survival that can recenter and ground us. And so here are some of my favorite whirlwinds, I guess you could call them, from the past year that I've learned. The first one really is I was listening to recently one of Krista Tippett's final interviews for her 20-year running radio show on being, and she interviews Adrian Marie Brown, who's an artist and an activist and an emergent strategist, just all-around amazing thinker. And in the interview, Krista talks about how for Adrian, the natural world is one of her first and most important teachers. So after they were talking about important people in Brown's life, Krista pivots and acknowledges, so your teachers also are in the natural world. They're mushrooms and dandelions. And at this point, Brown starts to get very excited about mushrooms and describes the intelligence of mushrooms this way. She says, so mushrooms, I feel like they're our great detoxer. They're the ones who understand that nothing needs to be wasted that everything can be used in some way. We just have to understand what it is. And I often think about this when it comes to our abolition conversations and our justice conversations. She continues that 
mushrooms are like, this is food. If we can find a way to use it, this could be nourishment. And then when something breaks down in our communities, she continues, it's actually a moment usually when something needs nourishing or when something is dead, when something is done, when it is complete and it needs to be processed back into the whole. All of this wisdom, wisdom from mushrooms. Mortal, have you considered the mushrooms? Or I like to think about the aster and goldenrod trees. So the aster and goldenrod trees are complementary colors, which in the art world means that they make each other's colors stand out even more, sometimes even look like they're vibrating. So botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of that much beloved book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and I know a couple of you have offered moments for mindfulness out of that book. But in her freshman year, she declared to her botany teacher that she wanted to be a scientist. And she wanted to be a scientist to find out why these two trees, the aster and the goldenrod, grew gorgeously together so often. Separate trees, but almost attracted to each other in nature. And when they get close, just phenomenally beautiful. And she was told that that was a ridiculous question and she should go to art school instead. It was quite demoralizing for her. But in the end, she won out and became a scientist and found that the reason these trees impressively find each other out in the wild and then grow together is because they are complementary colors. And pollinators love complementary colors. They appreciate it and are attracted to that beauty. So these trees, the aster and the goldenrod, they work together to thrive and flourish and feed. So mortal, consider the aster and the goldenrod. But then there's Dear Jane Goodall, who has opened our eyes to the amazingness of animals. And she celebrates that, quote, because science is now acknowledging that animals are not the machines they once thought, there's this huge flurry of information, really exciting about animal intelligence. And it ranges from chimpanzees using computers in clever ways, and elephants with their very close social bonds and strong relationships between herd members, and crows who turn out to be able to actually use and make tools, and pigs are as intelligent as dogs, more intelligent than some. And now we know the octopus is highly intelligent, and we know trees communicate with each other. So listening to dear Jane Goodall, mortal, can you consider caring the caring and compassionate relationships of the elephants? Then there's also the work of Suzanne Simard, um, which Jane Goodall references in her work. And if you've ever read the overstory, um, you've read a book that's inspired by her work. She is the, the character of the female forester is often assumed to be based on Samard. So Suzanne Samard was convinced that based on observing the ways trees grow and change, that they must be communicating with each other. So her contemporaries at the time, when she was young, said that she, this was crazy and they dismissed her. They said trees are inanimate, unintelligent objects, right? They can't communicate. But she really couldn't explain it in any other way. So she stuck with her studies, even at the rejection of colleagues. And guess what she found? And now scientists commonly agree upon. Trees communicate, and not just through one language, but through seven. They're able to communicate through carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus, and water, and defense signals, and chemicals, and hormones. So if 
if one tree is, has found water, let's say, in its roots at a creek bed, it will let the other trees nearby know to grow towards it. Or if a bug infestation starts to come into an area, trees out ahead of the infestation will begin to adjust their bark because they've heard from the other trees through stress signals to prepare themselves. They take care of each other. They are a community of trees, right? Not just a forest of lumber. Mortal, have you considered the trees? And then naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy says that the sudden, quote, quote, the sudden passionate happiness, which the natural world can occasionally trigger in us, may well be the most serious business of all. I'm going to read that one again. I love it so much. The sudden passionate happiness, which the natural world can occasionally trigger in us, may well be the most serious business of all. And, and I, Janelle, would even argue a divine gift. So his work, Michael's work of science and reporting and poetry, highlights that since we've evolved in this natural world, we found meaning and metaphor in the natural world, that is also where our psyches find the best rest. And he tells a story about how when he was seven, he was young, his mother was taken to a hospital because she was having a mental breakdown. And his brother was overcome with emotion and cried for days. But Michael felt nothing. And one day he went out for a walk and saw his aunt's neighbor's garden. And there was one plant that was coming over the wall and it had butterflies all over it. Four different kinds of butterflies as he remembers it. And he can name them, but I would butcher those scientific names. It would be embarrassing, so I'm not going to try. But he describes that where that emptiness of feelings was... The butterflies filled it. And I'm going to quote him here. When I was a skinny kid in short pants, butterflies entered my soul. When Michael couldn't process his own feelings, the beauty of creation comforted him. Mortal, behold the butterflies. <coughs> now, I could go on and on. Maybe my recommendation to you is, you can go on and on. You should watch My Octopus Teacher. Um, I, I know Nia and Sarah did this week. I saw it on Instagram, and Wade loves that. And he's recommended it to us many times. Um, or you could join us in August when we explore Andy Goldsworthy's sculptures of natural objects in his film. But I just know that I need to enter God's creative and imaginative whirlwind in nature sometimes. When things have been confusing, especially lately in our world, I need to be caught up in that. And now we know there's this assassination of the old prime minister in Japan, and now England has had their third prime minister step down in recent years. I truly do mean the world is a, is, you know, it's a little confusing sometimes. And I, I'm just, I'm growing more and more humble in my own estimation of how well we organize ourselves on the large scale, right? Um, I love the small scale, but the large scale, I'm just, I'm humbled. Perhaps maybe I just don't understand how that happens or happens well. But this is the exact gift, really, that God hands Job in the whirlwind. It's its this gift of humbling. It's the gift of a view outside of his own self and our own self. It's a lifting of the world's burdens, even, from Job's shoulders, because it acknowledges how big the world is and how we are such a small part of it. And there is so much we just don't understand. 
there is this rearranging of where Job is focused, less on himself and more on like the goat giving birth or the hail piling in the mountains. He's given this gift of anonymity, even insignificance. And then there's that gentling of the spirit that goes along with that. Through God's vast creative universe, we can sit in contemplative observation and be realigned to God's priorities and imagination and creativity. There is this lovely and fairly popular Wendell Berry poem that I want to end us with today in this sermon, because I think it, it just captures this so well. And you've probably heard it. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. I'm going to end us today with that reading. So if you want to find a comfortable seated position, maybe close your eyes. Sometimes with poems like this, it's really easy to actually travel through the poem in your imagination if your eyes are closed. Um, so I invite us to enter uh, this Wendell Berry kind of whirlwind for his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, and fear of what my life, my children's lives may be. I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light, for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Amen.